Welcome to Scrubcast, where we explore clinical, translational, and health services research from Stanford University's Department of Surgery through conversations with the authors. I'm your host, Rachel Baker. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Dr. Deshka Foster. That's right, this little underachiever decided to earn her PhD in the middle of her surgical residency. Welcome to the show, Deshka. Thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, this article in Cancer Cell is truly a tour de force, but I feel like the level of science is going to intimidate most people, including myself. So perhaps you can break it down a bit for us. So I'm excited to talk about this article. This is a topic that is very um, dear to my heart and one that's been of interest for a long time. Really what we're trying to explore and understand here are cancer-associated fibroblasts to understand their heterogeneity and really their um, functional activities in solid tumors. Just a little bit about cancer-associated fibroblasts to begin with. Mm. They're a, a really interesting type of cell in solid tumors because they're known, particularly in pancreatic cancers, to represent up to 70 or 80% of the cells in the tumor itself. But all of the therapies that we give to people now to try to treat solid tumors target other cell types in the tumor. So we don't really have any therapies that target these cells, even though they're known to be really ubiquitous. And the other thing that they're known to be responsible for in solid tumors is actually making the tumors hard. So the reason that you detect a breast cancer or a, a growth that's hard is because of the fibroblast, because they make the tumor fibrotic and therefore firmer than the surrounding parenchyma. Interesting. So a gooey tumor wouldn't have lots of fibroblasts. It would probably not have as much. And it's also probably why we can detect at least some types of tumors radiographically is because the fibroblasts make scar within the tumor and we can see that on our imaging. Cool. Yeah. So what new and exciting things did you discover about fibroblasts during your research? In this paper, we looked at fibroblasts primarily in breast and pancreas cancer. These are two types of solid tumors that are known to have significant quantity of fibroblasts in them. Again, two types of tumors that are known to be really firm. Mm -hmm. The word that comes up with these fibroblasts is the word desmoplasia, which is this like scarring reaction that's had around these types of solid tumors. Looking up how to spell desmoplasia and determining their heterogeneity. You're trying to determine they're not all just one kind of fibroblast. They're a bunch of different kinds of fibroblasts. Exactly. Yeah. So our goal was to more comprehensively delineate the cancer-associated fibroblast heterogeneity and really to understand if there are subpopulations of cancer-associated fibroblasts that are shared across multiple tumor types, suggesting that they kind of represent a commonly found phenotype of cancer-associated fibroblasts that may be amenable to therapeutic targeting. Got it. And did you find any of those? Yeah, so we did. We found a lot of different subtypes, and these fall into essentially what we describe as three superclusters of cancer-associated fibroblasts, and these were found to be conserved both across tumor types, so across breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and we also validated them in basal cell carcinoma data set, so skin cancer. And they were also found to be conserved across both mouse tissue and human tissue, which was an exciting thing to identify. And we found that each of these three superclusters that we described, which are steady state-like, mechanoresponsive, and immunomodulatory, we were able to identify kind of shared functional characteristics of each of these superclusters, 
each of which is made up of smaller subclusters that really kind of give us a sense of what these cells might be, what role they might be individually playing within the tumors. Got it. Okay, so now that you know what each little fibroblast community is doing, is the next step to try and create some kind of therapy that's going to kill them? Yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the reasons that these cells have fascinated me for so long, and I think are really deserving of additional exploration, is because initially when scientists found cancer-associated fibroblasts and started studying them, they thought exactly that. They thought, okay, fibroblasts are bad. If we knock them all out, the tumors won't grow. Hmm. And lo and behold, actually what they found was that the tumors grew like wildfire. Oh, no! (laughs) So it turns out, and this is kind of described as the paradoxical role of cancer-associated fibroblasts, and tumors, which we now in in our paper really validated that actually probably there are some subtypes of cancer-associated fibroblasts that are bad for the human and good for the tumor, and there's some subtypes that are bad for the tumor and good for the human. Ah. And so really when we think about targeting these cells therapeutically, we need to think about ways to modulate them, what we kind of describe as a push-pull mechanism by which we can elevate and support the ones that are actually beneficial to the human and maybe wall in the tumor and prevent the tumor from growing maybe as rapidly or spreading as easily, but then at the same time find ways to limit the ones that are bad for the human, for example, the ones that limit the immune response into the tumor and maybe chemotherapy accessibility to the tumor and features such as that. I'm so glad that someone doesn't follow my suggestions for science. (laughs) They're really, really, (laughs) these are the big scientists in this field who have done all these experiments. (laughs) Well, so obviously all of this work was done in isolation, right? You just did this all by yourself. There were no mentors or lab partners, no one like that. Oh my gosh, quite the opposite. I have an amazing team of people that I got to work with. Primarily, of course, Dr. Longacre, whose lab I've worked in now, going on five years, I want to say, whose lab I did my PhD in and who's just been a tremendous mentor throughout this project and really created just an incredible environment to study and be a scientist in, as well as Dr. Norton and Howard Chang, who are both co-PIs on this project and both have brought an incredible interest in specifically working with Howard Chang's lab, which is a lab that studies chromatin accessibility. Really bringing that into this project allowed us to understand a lot more about how the gene expression of the cancer-associated fibroblasts, really what is regulating that, and really do some exciting chromatin accessibility analysis of these cells. And then I have two just amazing co-authors that I'm so excited to have worked with who are Michael Janicek, who's now a clinical instructor here, and Dan Delito, who is one of our surgical oncology attendings. So I definitely lucked out and all of my other amazing co-authors who contributed to the project. So I really would not have done any of this without their help. Awesome. Well, and I assume you also couldn't do any of this without funding. And you are a general surgery resident. So I assume you're not getting anything just, (laughs) you know, in your standard package. (laughs) No. So where does the money come from? It's a great question. So we were fortunate enough to receive funding from the Stanford Cancer Center that supported a lot of this work. 
as well as many other grants which are listed in our paper. I also was supported by a NIH F32 award through the NCI during my PhD, which helped to support me to be able to do a lot of these experiments. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, we've had a number of other very (laughs) supportive grants that really helped us do all of this work. Well, so in terms of work-life balance, I feel like HSR is the obvious choice. You know, no stem cells to feed on the weekends and whatnot. No, like, really harsh, scary chemicals. What drew you to a wet lab and bench work? Mm, Excellent question. I have always loved basic science. To me, constantly, when I'm operating in the operating room, I'm thinking about, like, what is in this tissue? What's driving it to behave the way that it is? What can we know about this tissue to really identify what's going on with the patient's disease. And so to me, really answering those questions is definitely the kind of holy grail of what I get to do. And I love the basic science work. I love working in the lab. I love kind of designing experiments that allow us to explore and understand better the way that cells are behaving and the way that tissues are behaving to really create the environments in which things like cancer arise. So I don't know. I, it's my jam. I'm not sure what else to say. <laughs> I love it. I mean, we need people like you. Not everyone is destined to look at a spreadsheet all day, every day. (laughs) And I appreciate that. Thank you. And you are talking about doing surgery. And that is like what your main job is right now as a chief resident. So I guess this is the two part question actually is how do you find the time now that you are back as a clinical resident? And then also how did you structure your time as a PD resident Yeah, I mean, I I had the amazing opportunity during my PD years to be in the Longacre Lab, which is just such an, you know, a vibrant and productive environment that certainly I had awesome people to work with and definitely all the kind of intellectual inspiration that it (laughs) that is needed to really thrive and want to push yourself further. So I feel very lucky to have been in that environment and to get to continue to work in that lab and and do these experiments there. I certainly, I feel like some, (laughs) I probably worked as many hours on my PD years in the lab as I do as a surgical resident. So um, I think that, you know, I, I was willing to put the time in and it, you know, allowed me to get my PhD in three years, which was wonderful and really pushed me to really develop my kind of scientific acumen and ability to design experiments and to ask questions in a way that can lead to reasonable answers, I guess. So that opportunity has been really wonderful. I did do a lot of these experiments when I was in, you know, in the lab for my PhD, but I certainly have continued my work in the lab coming back. This is my third year back as a clinical resident. Mm -hmm. And I definitely do... I don't know. I do a lot of my work on the weekends or at night. I also have great people who I collaborate in the lab with. And sometimes, you know, if we end our cases early, I'll find a minute where I can sneak over and do a quick experiment in the afternoon or something like that. So I find ways to squeeze it in. But certainly I can be found uh, taking care of my mice around 9 p.m. on Sunday night. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) There's probably something wrong with me. You are graduating in a few months and heading to Sloan Kettering for a fellowship in complex general surgical oncology. Did you know you wanted to go into surgeon before you did the PD time? Or was that like, oh my gosh, cancer-associated fibroblasts. This is what I want to do with my life. Epiphany. I have always been pretty sure that was where I've headed. And actually, that helped me a lot really focus my PD time. I was pretty intentional about 
knowing that I wanted my PhD to be in cancer biology and kind of focusing my projects in a way that would lead to work that I could continue in my anticipated career, which I feel really lucky about. It's It's been nice to have a direction. I think as a junior resident on my clinical rotations, I certainly like you know, tried to explore everything and think about other subspecialties. But I have always mm-hmm. thought that surgical oncology was probably the way I would be headed. And sure enough, I'm very excited to have matched into fellowship. What is it about cancer that draws you in? I mean, number one, I really like taking care of the patients. I Mm. like the opportunity to kind of try to help patients in a really challenging time in their lives. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think cancer care allows you to form a pretty close bond with your patients, get to know their families, be pretty engaged over potentially a really long period of time. And to me, I kind of enjoy that the longevity of those relationships and that kind of environment. I, I don't know what is what it is about it, but it definitely, um, you know, is, is a kind of way I like to work um, with patients. In terms of the operations, I mean, I think they're fascinating. The opportunity to kind of design, you know, each tumor is a little bit different. Each patient case presents a slightly mm-hmm. different challenge. I love the tumor board discussions about how to approach a case <laughs> and looking over the imaging for hours beforehand and really trying to figure out the best way through each of the little complexities mm-hmm. to me. I, I love that in-depth analysis. And I don't know, the big belly cases, it's hard not to find them. Amazing. <laughs> I'm hooked. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, so do you plan to continue your research in fellowship and beyond? Yeah, I very much do. Thank you for asking about that. I definitely intend to continue my research as much as possible in fellowship and certainly hope as an intending to be a real surgical scientist and have a lab of my own. Yeah. And I think I have some really amazing mentors here, people like Dan Delito and Amanda Karani and people like that who are really paving the way for how that can look as a young attending. So I feel really lucky to have mm-hmm. had that kind of mentorship these days for people who are both having an active surgical career and also really being successful in the lab. And so I, I feel really grateful mm-hmm. to have that kind of models there who can help guide me on that path. On that exact topic, what do, advice do you have for a medical student or junior resident who's thinking about whether or not they want to do wet lab research, but are also thinking that maybe being a surgeon scientist is pretty masochistic. <laughs> um, I think I, I'm very happy. I enjoy what I get to do every day. I really am <laughs> truly very happy all the time. So, um, But no, my advice would be like, go to the lab, at least here. And I think this is probably true in most universities, like most people's doors are open and they're excited to have people come Mm -hmm. and ask questions and check it out. So if you think that a lab might be the right place for you, like going and hanging out in a lab, it'll certainly, you'll feel one way or or another about it. You'll either be totally in or not in, I think. And I mean, I would say the same advice to people who are thinking about going into surgery, like go hang out in the OR for a long time because you kind of, I don't know, you either don't want to leave or can't get out of there fast enough. And I think you know pretty quickly. Oh, it's true. I'm counting down the days until I'm allowed back in the OR. It is an amazing place. It is my happy place. It is. I'm, I'm right there with you. So I, I think that there's nothing like trying it out. And, you know, the other thing I would say is definitely in terms of the basic science papers like ours and this kind of work, like people are publishing lots these days. So if you can sit down and read a paper like this and get excited about it, I think that's a good sign that you think that way. And, you know, that's a helpful indicator, too. 
so those were all of my questions. Is there anything you'd like to add before we sign off? The other thing we were really grateful for is that we were able to collaborate with a group from Genentech that also works on cancer-associated fibroblasts. And so they shared one of their antibodies with us, which really helped us push the project forward and make it more relatable to other data that's being published these days. Well, that's really cool. How did you get in touch with Genentech? Yeah, so they've been publishing in this space quite a bit recently. And so we reached out to them and they were excited to collaborate. And it's really exciting to be able to share resources like that because it really helps unite these papers that are being published, uniting them and making the data mm-hmm. interrelatable, I think is really the key towards making it as relevant as possible and really thinking about the translational potential. Right. Yeah, definitely. The idea that everyone isn't operating in silos and that you can collaborate is probably the number one thing to actually getting a therapy that is going to help patients. Exactly. Exactly. You know, another resource that I should note that has just really supported me with this work and my PhD training in general has been the arts program, which I was fortunate enough to be part of for my PhD training and certainly received a lot of mentorship from them about not only, you know, how to complete a PhD as a resident, but also really how to begin to establish what it takes to have a surgeon scientist or just a, you know, an academic scientist career. So I definitely owe them a lot of credit for that guidance. Back it up there. What is the arts program? Yeah, so it's called the Advanced Residency Training at Stanford Program. And it is a funding program and mentorship and support program that allows residents and fellows here at Stanford to complete PhDs during their residency or fellowship. Just a really amazing program. I had no idea this existed. Yeah, it's super cool. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to find a link and put it in the description so other people can find it. They will love it. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like Scrubcast, we hope you'll tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.